0: Are you ready for Good Talk? And yes, of course you're ready. Good Talk, Chantelle Bear is in Montreal, Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa, I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto, Ontario. And uh, lots to talk about this week. This was a busy week. Um... And I'm going to actually start with the the most recent, because I've been trying to find out kind of what happened on Thursday night. Uh, Jean Charest had his first big rally in Quebec. And a lot of attention was placed on how he would do it, something like that, as he runs for the Conservative leadership. Two weeks in, rally in Quebec. Uh, So I looked through, the I scanned the English language uh, papers, the national papers, I couldn't find anything today. It doesn't mean it's not in there somewhere, but I couldn't find it. So, Chantal, you're in Montreal. I don't know whether you were at this thing or not, uh, but my betting is that you have, uh, if you weren't there, you had your spies there, and we have probably got some sense from you as to how it went.
1: And there was some uh, coverage in the French-language media to complement it. Uh, So, no, I wasn't there. I was at issuing, uh, and then took a pass on driving to Laval uh, to get there late for a speech. And by all accounts, those uh, of the people I know who were there and who know about things, uh, politics, and the people who have been reporting on it, uh, it was a good crowd. Uh, 350 to 500, depending on who you talk to and who you listen to. An enthusiastic crowd, uh, with uh, mixed in, uh, it wasn't just a meeting of the old friends of the Quebec Liberal Party uh, and Jean Charest's former colleagues. Uh, there were uh, plenty of conservatives there, including one from Alberta that uh, the Charest Camp uh, was boasting about earlier in the afternoon, Ron Liepert, who's an MP. But who used to be the Minister of Finance, among other jobs that they held in the Alberta government. So a significant um, catch, I think, for the Charest Camp. I would call what happened last night a relaunch of the Charrette campaign because it kind of started and stopped. It started uh, not on on a big bang in Alberta. Remember that basement launch? It kind of looked um, – well, it didn't scream momentum, put it this way. And then Jean Charrette caught COVID and uh, was in, in self-isolation, so he was doing whatever it is uh, that – leadership candidates do via Zoom and other uh, means. So this was his first real performance. And as opposed to Alberta, where he spoke without notes in a casual way about why he was running, he had a a more extensive speech speech which seemed to hit a lot of right notes uh, as to why he should be a conservative leader. talked quite a bit about Stephen Harper, by the way, uh, saying good things, talked about fiscal discipline, and how he had imposed it uh, uh, in Quebec when he was in office, and talked about uh, how he had gone to Quebec at a time of existential crisis over the unity issue, and he felt that... This was a good time to return to federal politics uh, at a time when, uh, at least in his view, the country is very divided. So, uh, overall, a good outing. The real important thing, I think, from a Quebec standpoint, was uh, whether uh, he would have a crowd that looked more sizable than Pierre Poilievre's crowds in Quebec last weekend, which were also uh, respectable in size. And what both of those visits tell me is that Quebec is really in this leadership campaign in a way that it has not been since the party reunited a couple of decades ago.
0: All right, uh, you know, I'm looking at the the pictures. Sir, tweeted himself some pictures from the uh, from the rally, and it's definitely a respectable crowd. It's not like it's an arena full of people, but it's definitely a you know banquet hall or something like that, and there's there, there's a lot of people there.
1: Uh, wedding hall, I think, wedding by hall. the way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Mostly used for wedding receptions, I'm told.
0: Not been too many in the last few years, but uh, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's crowd size, really, you got to be careful. And we all know that uh, about those. You can, you can stack a room. You can make a small room look like it's packed because it's small. And you can make a big room look like it's empty because you can't pack it. Um, so you have to be careful on, on these things. But... It' interesting to see that he's kind of he must have acknowledged himself that Calgary didn't go that well. If if he's prepared to kind of reset up, relaunch, and in in your words, I don't think he probably described it that way. But nevertheless, that's the appearance of it. Bruce, you got any thoughts on this uh, this opening? Uh, I'm going to get uh, to a bigger question on the on the conservatives, but uh, just on this first of all. Yeah,
2: I think if you roll back the clock a few weeks, the real question around the idea of Jean Charest as a candidate, would it was would it really gain any kind of traction or would he be kind of expelled at first sight by the party? And um, I think that question has been answered now. Uh, that doesn't mean he's going to win. That doesn't really have much to tell us by way of how is this fight going to evolve, but... At the same time, uh, I think he's managed to create a sense of, okay, he's an alternative to Pierre Polyev, who otherwise was looking like he was going to be the runaway leader of this uh, race. Um, and he's got a different pitch. And I think that uh, what's been happening, and I, you know, I, I, I take the point that I think that that Calgary meeting looked bad as a first step because maybe... People who knew him, like me, maybe, would look at it and go, well, as the first event to mark the kickoff of a campaign, uh, it didn't have the pizzazz that one might have hoped for. And so I started thinking about that, and I'm thinking, well, why would that be? And first of all, I think the question of whether he should have gone first to Calgary, I think, is a question of, is that a genuflection in the direction of this is the power base of the party? Probably. Is it going to be tough to draw the kind of crowd that um, Pierre Polyev could have drawn probably. Um, So who turned up is probably people who are from different parts of what used to be the conservative party under Stephen Harper or even before that. And that's not going to look like um, The razzle dazzle kind of event that that maybe, you know, is what you really want to kind of kickstart a campaign where people are wondering if it's going to take root. So I think the Quebec thing is a very important, almost a relaunch in effect, as Chantal was indicating the more importantly, uh, I think, in terms of what this means for him is that he's carving out a way of describing what he would want to do and what kind of conservative party he would want to lead. And I think that the question that he's answering, isn't just the one that he uses as a tagline, which is this built to win idea, the idea that a party led by him could win a general election. I think he's describing a party to a lot of voters who've wondered if they could associate with the conservative party um, in recent years Uh, because it has kind of moved in directions that made them feel uncomfortable associating with the brand. I think he's saying, I want to be the leader who makes it comfortable for you to say in the company of friends and family and neighbors and coworkers that you're joining the conservative party or going to support the conservative party. Now that might sound a bit like an insult to people who felt really good about the direction that the party has taken. But you know, arguably in Ontario and Quebec and maybe in parts of Atlantic, Canada, anyway, there may be a lot more people who are who are kind of sitting there going, "I don't know the Liberals went a little bit left for me. I don't know if I could trust the conservative brand to be consistent with my values. Maybe I should take a look at this guy so I, I think it's he's actually got you know an audience for his message now.
0: well, that's what I want to get at him in terms of what the message can be, should be, will be, if the Conservatives are going to um, have a chance of becoming uh, the next national government. And I, I was reading a piece this week by somebody who you both know, Ken Um uh, Most members of the public may not uh, have heard of that name before, but uh, he's well known within the party. He's been an aggressive organizer for years. Um, he doesn't like liberals, but he admires liberals. He knows that liberals uh, know how to organize and know how to position themselves for election campaigns. Uh, and he clearly is worried that the conservatives um, are not on the right path, haven't been for some time, and may not be again this time. So here's here's the conclusion of a piece he wrote for the line uh, this week, a couple of lines from it. Conservatives need to do more than just rail about balanced budgets lower taxes, free trade, and smaller government, though they should do those things, they need to provide conservative solutions to today's most pressing problems. And so when conservatives consider who to vote for in the coming leadership race, two of the principal questions they should ask are, which leader can win 40% to form a majority? He figures uh, they only have a shot at forming government if they form a majority, that a minority wouldn't do it for them. And the corollary, which leader is promoting policies that can get our vote from the low 30s to the low 40s? Conservatives need policies and a leader who can expand their coalition and grow their vote. Because if Conservatives just focus on issues that make Conservatives feel good, Canada will be governed for a very long time by the two parties, possibly joined by the Bloc, who this week did a deal to make Canada a much less conservative country. What do we make of that? Is that the signal um, that needs to be sent inside the Conservative Party, even by, you know, some of its most staunch supporters and people like Bozenkuhl who have fought really hard against liberals over the years, uh, you know, from positions that uh, are not necessarily the same ones he's talking about right now?
1: A few points first, uh, uh, and I need to quarrel with some of, of the predictions in there. Their BQ is not going to be joining a federal government tomorrow or in two years or in five years or in 10 years. If it still exists, uh, that is not going to happen. Uh, they they Just having the BQ in a support role the last time the Liberals tried to craft a coalition government, a real one with the NDP, actually went a long way to kill the deal. You do not give a sovereignist party, a veto over the directions of the government of Canada and, and escape uh, a, a price to pay in the ballot box that now or later. Uh, the other notion I'm going to quarrel with, and it's not just his, is that conservatives cannot hope to ever form a minority government that will survive the first few weeks uh, in power. And the reason I say that is because circumstances matter more than mathematics. If in three years after a decade of liberal rules, the conservatives win 39% of the vote and on that basis, or 37 and end up with a minority government, a lot of Canadians will have voted for change. And and I And that discussion, you will remember it because we were on air together that night. When Stephen Harper first won in 2006, a lot of punditry was wasted on how Paul Martin only needed to reach out to Jack Layton to stay in power. Had those two parties not made a deal on the previous budget? And did they not have a lot of common goals? And why that didn't happen? Not just because Paul Martin resigned. As you know, liberal leaders can resign and come back to be prime minister, it's been done, but because that would have gone against the spirit of that election. So I'm not treating this as a given that because the Liberals and the NDP got along to ensure uh, three more years of this parliament, that the Conservatives absolutely need a majority or actually that Canadians uh, would um, agree that uh, this is the only way that the Conservatives could come to power. Now, as to whether the, this should impact the conservative leadership campaign. I believe something changed for the conservatives this week, and a gift was given to them, a gift that they will not talk about, but that some of them have seen. And it is that whoever is elected leader, Pierre Poilievre, Jean Charret, or Patrick Brown, to name the three main contenders, will have time to recast himself and the party based on policies to go forward rather than the knee-jerk minority rule uh, reflex of saying, well, if the government says black, we're going to say white, or if they say white, we're going to say black. In three years, we will know if Justin Trudeau's climate change policy is, is efficient something we haven't known from election to election because it was always give us more time and you'll see that it's going to work. In three years, we will know whether a national child care program was worth investing in and is working for parents in the provinces. We don't know that now. So in that real life, there is a, one, an opportunity to put behind a lot of the stuff that may be said or may happen over the course of the leadership campaign for whoever wins. But there is also a chance to start expanding the tent on the basis of policy for all. And and I'm not saying any of those three contenders could not do it. They may or may not succeed, uh, but... Uh, th- 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 this gift of time I believe is really important for the Conservative Party at this juncture and probably is more likely to bring them back to power in three years than they would have in 18 months Bruce,
2: yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, to be said for what Ken Bozenkuhl is is arguing that Conservatives need to kind of focus on what needs to change in their coalition I think that his argument that there needs to be support in order to have a majority because there's other otherwise no way to have a conservative government. I don't, I I'm with Chantal. I don't think that's right. I think that's a, um, that's maybe a good way to enter the conversation with party members about the need to, um, kind of reorient themselves. I think that if it, if it works to create that conversation, then it's a useful tactic, but it is not, you know, it is not obviously true to me that that's the only way that this can happen. Um, I I think that the, you know, there is always with those kinds of uh, pieces, a certain amount of how do we just get victories as opposed to what do we want to do? And I think that the question of applying a conservative lens to the goals that many people or most people in the country have is probably a good starting point. But you have to start with those goals. So you have to start with, is there a way to use a smaller government, less regulatory, lower cost orientation to solve housing affordability, to deal with climate change, to deal with childcare? Um, And I don't think that the uh, I don't think that the work has been done yet to solve those problems within that party? What do they really want to accomplish? Is it different from what most voters want to see the country accomplish? In which case, just having in quotes, conservative solutions to these problems, the, the issue is really what are these problems that we're gonna to tackle uh, together? And the last thing I'll say is that there's a uh, an implied, we just need to add a few things. Uh, aspect to that argument. And the truth is that there needs to be a subtraction to um, the idea of a conservative brand that hesitant voters will feel comfortable marking an X for has probably got more to do with, I don't want to see any evidence of um, Islamophobia. I don't want to see any evidence of climate denial. I don't want to see any qualification of is everybody equal, regardless of their sexual orientation. Those are issues where the party, if it's going to succeed in the long term, probably needs to. I mean, it could succeed without doing this by virtue of luck and circumstance. But to build a robust, successful long term thing, they need to sort of look at some of those attitudes and say, There's a people's party uh, for those folks or we just can't we can't sort of we can't sort of welcome all of the stuff that we've got in our tent right now and expect to be able to add other voters to it. That friction has been evident for years now and it's growing worse and it's going to grow worse unless it's dealt with at a leadership level,
0: I think. All right. And in defense of Ken, I should say in the in the full article, he does do the climate he said they absolutely have to get a, a, a huge advocate on that issue. Policy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I,
1: I'm uh, no, I like this piece and, and I thought it was useful for conservatives to read. Uh, Agreed, but but there are things in there uh, that reflect some of the blind spots of conservatives. For instance, uh, that a deal between the NDP and the Liberals has made Canada less conservative. Is that the chicken or the egg, because 50.4% of Canadians voted for the NDP and the Liberals, and none of those voters was surprised by the content of their agreement, because it was part and parcel of issues that are part of their brand, have been part of it for three elections. If you add to those, a fairly high chunk of Black voters... Who certainly disagree with the notion that the federal government would impose conditions or put strings on child, on healthcare funding, but who otherwise are on side with the climate change policies and the childcare policies uh, of the federal government that are part of this deal, you have a, a fairly significant mass, and I think conservatives, um, many conservatives, have wanted to de- live in denial of the reality. Uh, of where the, the, the real critical mass of voters is, it is not uh, being denied its voice by a deal with the Liberals and the NDP. The opposite is more true. And if you look at successful conservative small-c premiers in this country, you will find more common ground between Francois Legault, Doug Ford, and Justin Trudeau than between Francois Legault, Doug Ford, and Pierre Poilievre, to name one. Uh, that also sends a signal. If Doug Ford wins a majority next June, it will be because voters who voted for Justin Trudeau last fall will vote for him. They are comfortable voting for both, and they have been for the past few elections. I don't think conservatives have wanted to look that in the face. Um,
0: okay, we're gonna move on. i, 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 I I'm gonna I'm gonna risk. Getting boxed around the ears by Chantel is kind of a weekly event here. But let me just say one thing about the uh, about this issue about the conservatives and the block getting it together on something. Um, you know, you're quite right. What happened in, in 2006, but in 2004, at the end of that parliament. You know, Gilles Duceppe, the bloc leader, sat down with Jack Layton and Stephen Harper and signed a deal that that did some changes to the parliamentary process. Uh, But Harper wanted to take it further than that. He'd written articles in the 90s about the only way the Conservatives were ever going to defeat the Liberals was if they made a pact with the bloc. So it was kind of out there, and that was kind of the first indication that that there was some some way to get some agreement between those two. But I'm not going to push it any further than that, because I can (laughs) can see the right hook and the left jab coming at me right away. uh,
1: If you ask uh, the Quebec caucus uh, of the Conservative Party, uh, most of them would tell you that they're fighting and they're fending off the bloc uh, to keep their writings. That is where the battle line is uh, between them. Uh, It's not Justin Trudeau that they fear most. Uh, It's the bloc québécois.
0: Um, yeah. Okay. I don't, so I don't, yeah, I, we, <laughs> so we don't agree on it. we agree on that point.
1: Um, and can oh, you imagine siding with a, a Jean charlie led conservative party? What that would do to Quebec politics? the, the former federalist champion, could find
0: support. <laughs> yeah. in that.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm done.
0: Moving on. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I know that you're sitting out there going, "Are you ever going to talk about that deal that could make Canada a socialist state, or already has?" <laughs> We are going to talk about that deal. And in fact, it'll be the majority of this discussion. But before we get there, we have one little point to make on our friend, the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kinney. We'll make that right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk on the Bridge. You're listening on... uh, Series XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Bruce is in Ottawa, Chantel's in Montreal. I'm in Toronto for this day. Um, Jason Kenny, Boy, it seems every week there's something that he serves up that we can uh, that we can talk about. And he didn't serve this one up. Uh, a good CBC reporter dug this up, found a tape, or got leaked a tape, of Jason Kenney speaking at a, a party or a caucus function, not a public one, a private one, where he told his supporters, or at least those in the room, that, um, sure, he thought at times of maybe he should step down, but he decided he was staying because somebody has to control the lunatics, his word, inside the party. Now, when I heard that, I thought, This guy sounds like that guy on Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on Wednesday on the bridge. (laughs) He's just stealing his language. Um, This sounds like quite something for a guy to say about members of his own party. Although Hillary Clinton said it. (laughs) Look what happened to her. But Bruce, uh, what's your take on this? Well, I felt like the unplugged Jason Kenny was
2: the most honest I've heard uh, him be. And I know that he didn't mean for these comments to be made to be kind of aired publicly. But he was describing what those of us from a distance would have easily imagined was a very frustrating existence. Now, some of his frustrations in that job are entirely on him. It's completely Erroneous, I think, for him to pretend that the only thing that's going right in the Alberta United Conservative Party is his leadership. And the only problem is that there's a whole bunch of other people who don't understand the gift that he's brought to Alberta politics. Um, he has, I think, on the whole, failed to articulate uh, a more kind of optimistic, forward looking, thoughtful policy agenda. Um, which could have eroded some of the hyper-partisanship and the friction and the and the acid, really, in, in Alberta politics, because his natural setting often does veer in the direction of hyper-partisan himself. Um, I think it's a bit of a caricature that he makes of himself sometimes, because those who know him from his Ottawa days know he's a pretty smart guy, and he's capable of having a conversation that isn't all hyper-partisan, but... Um, he looked like he wanted to play that game. And I don't think it's been successful for him. I don't think that the the right likes him. I don't think that the center likes him in the province. And I think he's battling a, a pretty serious situation. And when you and I talked about this, Peter, the other day, I think I said I'd be, I would not be surprised if he decided to bow out before this vote actually takes place. If he thinks he can't win it, then it doesn't make sense for him to let it happen. It does make sense for him to say, I've done my best. I've tried everything I can. The problem is the deplorables, not me. I've got to move on to something else. Um, I don't know whether that's what will happen. I don't know whether the change in the format for the voting is going to actually materially improve his chances, but I've never seen, and we've all seen lots of, leaders under duress this has been protracted it's been vicious it's been public it's been you know it's been hard to see how he can kind of come out of this i don't remember seeing a leader under such sustained internal
0: fire and it's not even just internal you got something uh briefly to add to that Chantal?
1: Oh, well, for one, the change from uh, in-person vote to mail-in ballot means the calendar has also been altered in the sense that those ballots will be mailed. uh, The vote was supposed to take place on April 9th. Now those ballots will be mailed and you need to send them back in by May 18th. So that pushes off a result uh, until late May, basically. Um, I... I I was struck by the fact that, according to the CBC report, the premier was addressing caucus staff. So someone in there was taping what the premier was saying at the staff meeting, one, and two, some of those caucus staff members must work for some of the lunatics that Jason Kenney was talking about since some of the members of his own caucus are, have been calling for him to resign. And third, at the time when Jason Kenney is fighting on two fronts. He's fighting for his job, but he's fighting also to reverse a trend in the public opinion polls and in voting intention that favors the NDP. This sends the message that there are so many lunatics within his own party by his own admission that he needs to keep them at bay by holding his ground. What does that tell you about a party when its leader fears it will be overwhelmed by lunatics. He's basically saying there are many, many, many of them. Uh, And I think that's damaging to the image of the party on the larger scale of of, of provincial politics.
0: Okay. Yeah, I
2: think actually it's one of those moments where people who are wondering if conservative is in danger of becoming something that they can't really consider voting for, not just in Alberta, but maybe more broadly. You actually have the leader of an important part of the conservative movement in Canada, kind of confirming that that's what he sees up close. And, you know, there is a silver lining in this that he's he's giving oxygen to um, an argument that needs to be out there, that needs to be had, that, that that conservatives need to confront if they don't want to if they don't want to end up with a Republican style conservative movement in Canada with all of the awfulness that we see happening south of the border. Um, we need people to call it out and, and less people like me and more people like Jason Kenney.
0: All right, we're going to take our final break and then come back and deal with the uh, the biggest story of the week, and that's the deal between the Liberals and the NDP and just exactly what it means. Back in a moment. All right, we're back with Good Talk. Chantal's in Montreal. Bruce is in Ottawa. I'm in Toronto. You know, it must have been a... Strange couple of days for Justin Trudeau because there he was standing in the European Parliament the other day giving a speech and being heckled by three of the 705 or eight, whatever it is, number of European parliamentarians, the three being upset at the trucker convoy situation and that uh, Trudeau was a dictator for the way he uh, brought that to an end. So that was on the one hand. On the other hand, he's looking out at this room of um, the various parliamentarians representing 27 different countries in Europe, many of whom depend at home on the success of their home governments based on some form of coalition or agreement between parties. Right? That's the norm. Uh, in in many countries in Europe. Uh, And so he had just orchestrated along with uh, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP an agreement on how to move forward and not have an election for the next three years. And he got hammered. He got hammered by uh, the opposition parties who called it, uh, you know, the end of democracy, basically. Some of them really going go the extra yard saying we're communist, and some commentators falling in line with all that. So, as the dust has settled over the last three or four days, what is appearing there in terms of the future of Canada's political system? Was this, you know, was, a, was this anything really out of the ordinary? Has has the system changed significantly as a result of this this deal, uh, or are we uh, just proceeding along with uh, with no threat of an election in the next you know month, which is always what seemed to be the case in in past uh, uh, minorities of the last couple of years? Um, why don't you start us off on this, uh, Chantal, and then we'll. Well, a
1: word it. on the heckling in the European Parliament, if you're Justin Trudeau and you're going to be heckled by members of far-right parties, extreme right parties, you're much happier than if you were heckled by the Green Party members who also sit in that parliament. So given a choice of heckling, um, I think that was probably the best case scenario. Have, have, as fundamental change happened, it's too early uh, to say that. But I, I do believe that it could lead to change. For one thing, you mentioned all those European countries where coalitions are the rule because they have a different voting system. If you are a big proponent of electoral reform because you believe it's going to better reflect uh, the voters uh, and, and lead to parliaments that better reflect the mix in government and in opposition, then... You should find this as close as you're going to come to that system, because under a more proportional system, coalition governments in this country would be the rule. And by their very nature, progressive parties, such as the uh, the NDP or the Green Party, would be more likely to strike alliances with the liberals than they would with the conservatives. So uh, it, that 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 would be one could it change the way we approach and i'm not saying this brings electoral reform any closer because i see no evidence of that if it were successful and productive i believe it might and the reason i say that is that we have we have been using parliament in the way that we used to when we always have three parties in the house two dominant ones and a third party and at that time, minority governments were the exception, not the rule. But over the past seven elections, we have elected five minority governments uh, that lasted on average two years, which is not really seriously long enough to implement, discuss, debate, serious policy. That has short sure changed a serious conversation about uh, policy. And it is also meant that we're always starting and stopping and starting and stopping and voters never get a chance to look at the, 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 the entire picture and say, this was a good idea or this was mismanaged. Uh, because parties on a, are on a permanent electoral footing. You can bet the House that, absent this deal, come next fall, once a conservative leader is in place, we would have been spending the next months, weeks, talking on this show about whether the government would survive the next week or the next budget, and an election would normally have taken place probably, if not at the end of 2023, certainly in 20, not in 2025. So if this works and is constructively um, leading to actual policies that voters can dismiss or judge, but on, on their merits in the next election, It may go some way to change the way that we or the parties approach uh, minority parliaments and what they try to achieve out of them. I was struck by how much of the commentary dealt with the game of politics and trying to game who wins and who loses. And by the way, not a single one of the commentators who uh, didn't like this deal felt that Justin Trudeau was not the winner. So somewhere or somehow there must be something in there. But I was uncomfortable with how much time was spent on gaming this deal rather than on the substance of it, Uh, because my experience uh, comes from the Ontario agreement between the NDP and the Liberals in 1985, which... From you know, the conservative standpoint, was much worse in the sense that it allowed the liberals with less seats than the conservatives to sit in power for two years uh, with the support of the NDP. If Ontarians did not like the experience, they certainly did not show it in the subsequent election two years later because David Peterson won a majority government and if voters felt that they should punish the ndp and bob ray for doing that they had a strange way of showing it by giving him a majority government a couple of years later and what i'm trying to say is the noise this week does not it was disconnected from the experience and if you want to go more recent look at bc I don't notice that uh, British Columbians were so unhappy over the NDP and John Horgan striking a deal with the Green Party to be in power for a couple of years uh, that they chased them from power. On the contrary, they gave him a majority government. So we like to talk about accountability. In this case, I believe accountability will come in 2025 for better or for worse. And I am not saying this will ensure that the liberals are reelected. I actually believe that by 2025, if the Conservatives do their job of government and waiting rather than opposition, uh, it will be 10 years since the Liberals have first come back to power, and people will start to look to see if they have fresher options.
0: Okay, before Bruce jumps in… on the gaming thing, I, I agree with you, and it's basically lazy journalism, right, I, of which, I, you know, I, I concede I've been a part of over the years myself, but it's a lot easier to play the the who won, who lost game than it is to deal with substance and actually study the situation and, and uh, try to determine uh, what could happen and, and why and whether it would be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it's... You know, it is one of the faults of political journalism. Same thing happens in election campaigns. We get all fixated on polls and we do the horse race stuff because it's easy. It's an easy story to tell. Um, The others are much harder. Uh, All right, Bruce. Uh,
2: Well, I I do. I noticed several times this week that Chantal was making the point that um, about gaming and instead kind of can we just stop for a minute and say are these ideas that generally will be helpful for people who voted for one or the other of these parties or even for people who maybe didn't vote for these parties and that should really be our first question and i know that it isn't always and we we talk about politics but i think that is the most important kind of thing and, and i think that the the early sense that i have and we're polling on it of uh, the reaction of people is that that. There's very few people who look at this and say, I'm horrified by this. There's more people who say, "Ah, I'm kind of interested in this. And maybe the best evidence of whether the conservatives effort to demonize or villainize this accord um, isn't catching fire not even close to catching fire there's no sparks there's nothing that looks like smoke is that within 24 hours they weren't talking about it anymore they didn't speak about it yesterday really in the house they did use the terminology ndp liberal government all the time and i every time i heard that i kind of felt like is that a good idea for them to do that because it Uh, This is where I want to go is is I don't know what the future of these parties will be, the two that that form this supply alliance. But I do know that uh, in the last couple of elections, there's been more talk and more effort than I've ever seen before in the direction of strategic voting for progressive voters who don't want a conservative government. You should vote for the progressive candidate who can win in your riding. And that included people who had historically been partisans of the NDP saying, in some cases, you should vote liberal and some on the liberal side saying, in some cases, just, you know, vote orange if you don't want blue. So I think there already is a certain amount of um, common feeling that the, cons- the idea of conservative is the bigger risk for progressive voters. And um, it, maybe it grew out of the Harper uh, uh, time in office, but then it kind of accelerated. I think with Andrew Shear. I don't know what to make of the the Erno Tool piece, but it's also. Uh, and this is my last point. In the past, whenever parties might consider something like this, it would it would be because something was on the brink of collapse. Uh, There was the risk of an unexpected election. There was a sense of crisis in the air. This had to be done, even though it was a kind of a hard pill to swallow for partisans of the red team or partisans of the orange team. But you had to do it because the alternative was more dire. This isn't that. This is two parties looking at an agenda. I went and looked at the agreement again today, and I didn't see anything other than two parties saying, well, basically, these are all things that we kind of aspire to. And so, we're going to lay out a three-year work plan, and we're going to try to keep in close contact with each other so the thing doesn't break down for lack of, um, uh, you know, attention to the human aspects of this, which is very important. But there was nothing of the holding our nose and doing this uh, because we had to, because of a crisis. It It really felt like it's an agenda that there is no uh, there's no real daylight on. And there will be some blue Liberals who, and we have seen some of them publicly, um, you know, making clear that they're not happy with it, um, looking for something that they're calling Unite the Centre. Uh, but the, there has to be a, another dance partner, uh, I think. And I don't know what the Liberals are going to do in, if they have a leadership convention, but without a, with Trudeau, anyway, the drift of the party has been so much more towards the progressive policy uh, side of things that um, he probably thinks that that he'll get as many center votes as as he can or needs to because the conservative party is still struggling um, to identify itself as a as a choice for those centrist voters. You know, I was listening. Or maybe go ahead, no, Trudeau.
1: I, or maybe Justin Trudeau isn't thinking about all that because he now has three years and a partner to oversee yes. that he sticks his nose to where it should be on policy rather than politics, because Agreed. that is also something that the liberals will now need to learn to live with. And it is that they're not out to score a win to win an election. I do believe it makes the uh, finance minister, G- uh, a Christian freelance job and, and place as the uh, the perceived frontrunner to succeed Justin Trudeau more difficult. For one, it plunges her into a long period of uncertainty. Um, Will we be going to war? What's the economy going to be like? And two, she now has to find a way to juggle more spending without coming across as the finance minister who dug the biggest Possible whole uh, post pandemic or absent a pandemic in Canadian history, which is not great if you're going to be campaigning as the leader of a party in three years.
0: And, you know, n- 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 not to also mention the, uh, or actually to mention the the other question about whether Trudeau deter- decides to say. I mean,
1: I, I think- won that bet that we took at year's end. I need to remind you well, guys the, of uh, that.
0: The year's not over mm-hmm. yet. Uh,
1: Okay, but the the odds that you will win, I think you should start setting whatever prize aside. We are getting slimmer. (laughs) To
0: to step away from being the the leader faced with the challenge of a potential war, the pandemic's not over, the economy has the potential to go really into the tank, Um, to walk away from those challenges would say something about a person. uh, I'm
1: three more years in power.
0: Yeah. Anyway, we'll see. I'm not backing away yet, but uh, but here's one thing I'd, I would like to pick up on as, a, as kind of the last area, um, because I listened closely to what you were saying, Chantelle, about the Bob Ray experience, about the BC experience, and I, I, I totally get it, uh, what you suggest on both sides of the equation about uh, whether there's lasting damage to a party as a result of entering a deal like this. Um Let me give a couple of other examples on a different take. You know, you have Tommy Douglas as the NDP leader in the 60s through majority governments of Pearson, and out of those majority governments getting something that gave him the legacy of being the father of Medicare. He lost, uh, not only the election, but his own seat, I think, after that. Um, But nobody thinks about that. They think about the legacy of what he meant. Uh, in, in similar ways, not quite as grand, but David Lewis propping up Pierre Trudeau in the early 1970s uh, in a informal arrangement that everybody knew was more formal than informal. Um, and his legacy is intact, not, not known for losing elections, but for, for getting certain uh, gains in social policy areas. Jack Layton could have had that in, uh, in 2004 by supporting... Uh, making a deal with the liberals on childcare and Kelowna, uh, w- whatever it may be. Um, now his legacy was <laughs> protected because he he instead became the opposition leader with over a hundred seats, which was an amazing feat. So the issue for Jugmeet Singh uh, may be, and it's kind of sounded like it when I was listening to him the other day, is that what he sees as the wins for people will be his legacy. As opposed to any potential win uh, on the national scale, either as government or or even as opposition. I don't know what are you. That's a
2: pretty rational uh, thought that he has, I think, and 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 I actually found myself listening to him articulate it and thinking this seems more comfortable coming out of his mouth than some of the performative partisanship that he's had to do in the past. I think both Trudeau and Singh got got something good for themselves, for their agenda, for their sense of purpose in politics out of this accord. Uh, I don't think uh, Trudeau gave anything up. I don't think Singh gave anything up. And I think that's really unusual for us to be able to see a situation develop like that. I mean, I'm sure that people will pick nits with that, you know, till, <laughs> till the cows come home, but that's my sense of it. And But one of the things that, that Jagmeet Singh uh, did get, in addition, is the ability not to have to say Justin Trudeau is a horrible human being and to do all of that kind of stuff, which he never seemed very comfortable with, which didn't really sort of strike a resonant chord with very many members of his voting coalition. And I think that's a that's a constructive thing for him. Uh, whatever happens to him. um, You know, maybe he'll emerge as a more interesting and persuasive and powerful leader. And maybe the NDP will be the brand that rises to the uh, to the forefront for progressive voters. I don't really know how that's going to go. I think that there's a lot to play for with. uh, We've talked about it as 50 percent of voters today, but I actually think that it's more like about 60 to 65 percent of voters who are more interested in the progressive uh, style of government that that we're talking about. Um, but, but I think it, it gave, uh, Jagmeet Singh a chance to have a different job in politics. And I think that's a good thing for him. I think it, he's right to identify that it's a good thing for the, uh, for the ideas that he believes in and the people who want to see them. Are we sliding
0: dangerously close to the who won, who lost? <laughs>
2: there, oh, there. No, you no, know, I just <laughs> think it's uh, it's about taking some of that, uh, kind of weird partisanship out of the conversation. Uh, So that, to me, is a win for everybody.
1: But it's also a win for the person who leads uh, uh, on it. And I think in the case of Jack Layton, the perception that he had been an honest broker certainly helped him on the way to uh, bringing the party to official opposition. People tend to forget that Jack Layton was the leading voice in the coalition crafting efforts of 2008, that parliamentary crisis. Uh, he certainly reaped rewards for it in the twenty eleven election. Yep. Uh, he didn't get punished; it was the opposite. But beyond who won and who lost, there has been a lot written about how Jack, you know, uh, Chuck Mead saying is a cheap date, and uh, he, he Trudeau got the better of him. But I do think what he was saying this week uh, and and what he decided to do is in sync with what most NDP voters. Feel the NDP should be doing uh, that, that. they win for they want their party to have a role in pushing issues that matter to them, uh, and this fits how the NDP uh, has traditionally been uh, effective in the House of Commons. Now let's be clear: a week ago, no one was talking about the NDP, and that had been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, and without picking winners and losers. It is much better to have some reason for people to look at you when you're in parliament than to just be the fourth party uh, that is kind of uh, stuck supporting the government uh, without any role because you don't want an election.
0: All right. We're going to leave it at that uh, for this week. A fascinating discussion. A lot of really, I mean, it was a big week and, and we didn't even touch really on, uh, we didn't touch at all really on uh, on Ukraine. Um, and it continues to be a big week on that. Uh, if you are one of those who enjoy Good Talk every week and it's your main episode of The Bridge that you listened to. You should track back and listen to a couple of the earlier episodes this week. Uh, Tuesday, Margaret Macmillan on the war, and and she was, as she always is, um, uh, terrific. The uh, former Prime Minister of Australia was on Monday talking about China's role in all this, uh, and that's fascinating too. Uh, But, you know, nothing beats good talk. Thanks, Chantel. Thanks, Bruce. Listen, everybody, have a great weekend. We'll be back with another... uh, full week of episodes on The Bridge starting on Monday. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Take care.